Would you turn with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 1? It's toward the back of your Bible. If you go to Revelation, back up James, then, I mean, to, through John and Peter and James, you get to Hebrews. It is actually on, it's actually on page 1001, if you're using the Bible that's in the pew or the chair. That's the English Standard version of the Bible. Uh, does anybody not have a handout? Anybody? Everybody? Okay, good. <clears throat> We're going to do a little bit of study. I know that hurts, but we are going to do a, bit, a little bit of study as we try to tackle these first four verses. Glorious, glorious statement here. <clears throat> you notice, unlike Letters that you can see even across the page where Paul says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, Timothy, our brother, or you back up one to Titus, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, introducing, you know, a letter. This one just, bam, right into it. Shows, again, that this is a sermon, and that's why he uses words like hear and, and, and listen and speak. And even when he quotes the Old Testament, he doesn't say it is written. He says God says. So he, he's trying to give you the picture of him being right there speaking to these people. And I'll probably refer to him as the pastor, as uh, one commentator, Cockrell, uh, says a lot. The pastor says this. The pastor says that. Just to remind you that he was a pastor. Uh, he was in the uh, Pauline's little, uh, Paul's little circle of ministers and he had some kind of a close relationship with these people, but he's writing from a distance. And he hopes to be restored to them, as he says in the last chapter. And by the way, if you haven't, didn't get the introduction to Hebrews, it's on the back table if you want to pick that up on the way out. <clears throat> so, just jumps right into it. And, and I'd, I'd like you to think about that kind of like uh, John functions with the four Gospels. There's introduction of each of the Gospels in some way. Some more elaborate than others. But John just jumps in and says, in the beginning was the word. All right? Just the, the rhetorical uh, literary effect of that, of hearing that beginning. You're just drawn into it immediately. Um, and John touches on some of the same things that this writer does. They're out of the same mindset of setting forth Christ as the one whom God, through whom God has spoken and something of the glory of this Christ. So definitely John and the writer of Hebrews are on the same page, not just that they're both uh, you know, Christians, but they're, they're going at it the same way. <clears throat> and so the writer of Hebrews is pulling us into a story immediately, just pulling us into a story, just like you'd hear long ago, right? <laughs> that has that feel. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Thus the reading of God's word. Let's pray. 
Father, give us your grace, give us your spirit, O Lord, that we will come to worship Christ all the more, to admire him, to adore him, to give ourselves up to him. And Lord, that his life might be in us and we might show forth his character. Oh, bless us, Lord, with that great happiness. Amen. I hope you'll keep your Bibles open. Really important, uh, always, of course. But the first thing I want to talk about is how the, the, the context of this section and what the writer of Hebrews, the pastor, is doing. As you look at your page, you can see that under chapter 2, it goes down to verse 4. I would like for you to think of that whole section as the introduction. Okay, from verse chapter 1, verse 1, down to 2, 4. That's the introduction. And you get a feel for what he's doing when you read in verses 1 and 2 that he's spoken to us by his son. And then when you get to 2, notice we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. And again, he contrasts the things that were spoken before, verse 2 of chapter 2, if the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... And every transgression of disobedience received just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation that's now presented to us? So see, this whole first section is about this. this. God has spoken in his son. And let me tell you how great his son is. And he spends the whole rest of chapter 1 saying, this is how great the son is. This is how great the son. This is how great the son is. We must pay attention to what God said in his son. That's the whole introduction. God has spoken in his son. This is how glorious he is. We must not ignore what God has said in his son. And then opens up to begin to talk about Christ. And much of Hebrews is taken up with Christ as the priest and Christ as the exalted one. Uh, which, of course, will be opening up in the weeks to come. But so, first of all, just that overall context so that you can get the feel that these first four verses are all about that point that he's about to make in chapter 2. You have to pay attention to this. Do not abandon this Christ. And remember, the title, overall title of our series is Hold Fast to Your Hope. What hope? The hope that you have in this Christ. The hope that God has established for you by giving you his son. Don't abandon what God has done for you in Christ. That's the feel of this whole book. Hold fast your hope. It's the only hope you have. It's the only hope there is. Don't let go of it. And at the first here, he's just trying to blaze before us the majesty of this son through whom God has spoken. So that we would never, ever ignore or abandon what he has said through this son. So that's the feel of this passage. Uh, It's all in the context of you must hear, you must hear, you must Give yourself to what God has said in his son. And so in that way, it's much like John where John says in the beginning was not the son, but the word. 
right? Calling Jesus by that name so that it's, it's seen he's the one that speaks God to us. He's the one that reveals God to us. Through Christ, God opens up himself to us. And that's exactly what Hebrews is saying, the writer right here. He has spoken to us by his son. Actually, the word is in his son. And it's interesting, he doesn't really then say, and this is what Jesus said, 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 right? You might think if he says, he spoke through the prophets, now he's spoken through his son, well, what did the son say? No, it's in his life. It's in what he accomplished that God has spoken to us. See, he's revealed who he is by showing us In the person of Christ, who he is. This is his word. Spoken, yes, everything that Jesus said was a revelation of God. But everything Jesus is, is the revelation of God. Everything Jesus accomplishes is the revelation of God. So we read God in Jesus Christ. That's what he says When he says, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Now, uh, we'll get a little technical here, okay? Um, And I want to look at this structure uh, that this first section is in. And it's there on your sheet under the box. I've got a few notes uh, to introduce it. But... This structure, it's called uh, a chiasm. And there you go. Throwing another word out there. I don't care. All right. But chiasm is from the Greek word of Greek letter. We call it in English chi. We might, they might say key. But Greek letter is basically an X. Okay. That's what it looks like if you saw it. Now, here's the idea. Here's the first part of the X. And then the second part of the X starts where this ends and it comes back. To where it started. That's why the X, see? And then it crosses in the middle, and that cross in the middle is an important part of the structure. That's where you get to the D part here, see? So the first part of the X, second part of the X, the chiasm. Now you can just wow your neighbor. Let me tell you what a chiasm is, you know? <laughs> okay, so. Uh, This helps us, though, to understand how he relates the different parts of this first four verses. And it underscores connections that are in these first four verses. Now, just so you know, one of the indicators that he has constructed it this way is A through C have a a verb tense called the aorist. It's kind of a past tense. Okay, D, those two uh, verbs are present tense and then coming back out, C through A, past tense again. So that's one of the ways to underscore. You've got these two past tense sections. You've got this middle present tense section, right? Then another interesting thing is you see C and C where he uses the same word to make the world and to make purification of sins. He could have just said he purified for sins. That would be the normal, easy way to say it. But he purposely used the word made to uh, match what he had said earlier. You have to bear in mind this guy is 
excellently trained in the rhetoric, the literature, the structure, how to set forth uh, a document. This is a brilliant, brilliant work all the way through with brilliant Greek, best Greek in the New Testament, and uh, excellent arrangement of his material. So it's, it's not only glorious in what it says, but it's glorious in how it says it as well, as any commentator will tell you that, <clears throat> will tell you. Now, so we'll look at several of these uh, matches. One is this match of C and C. It is a way to underscore this amazing fact that the one who made the world is the one who makes purification for sins. Amazing. The creator of all things. The creator of all things is the one. And in fact, it, that's the, really the translation. He made all things. He made purification of sins. I think I've told you this before. I've had... Uh, Jehovah's Witness come visit my home now four times. Uh, must have a target on my back right there, right? Um, and as some of you probably know, Jehovah's Witness believe there's not a trinity. It's not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because of that, they believe that God made Jesus, created him. That's why in the Nicene Creed, says he was begotten, not made. It's the same heresy hundreds of years ago that we have with the Jehovah's Witness. And the thing I've said to them four times, <laughs> you think they get tired of it, but I say, I say, let me just briefly say this and then you can leave. I said, the thing that I despise so much about what you say is that you teach God made something, someone, no matter how high the being is, no matter how great he is, he made him and he was the one that went and did his dirty work to bear the sins of the world. I said, that is blasphemous. That you do not teach that God himself, the maker of the world, Came with his own hand, so to speak, and he bore the punishment for sin. That is God. You see, in the very making purification of sins, he's revealing to you, this is, this is what I'm like. This is what I do. This is my faithfulness. This is my mercy and kindness. This is my sacrificial love. This is who I am. You see? A revealing. He spoke many ways, portions through the history. He's spoken in his son. The son that made the world is the son that purifies for sins. And there's the idea with that, that the same sovereign action that out of nothing made the world... In a sovereign action that had just as deliberate and perfect results that, that nothing could stand in the way of, he made purification of sins. Who? God made purification of sins. Is anyone say no to that? Does anyone stand in the way of that? 
if he makes purification. No, it's done. It's accomplished. The one who made the world made purification for sins. You can count on it. It's glorious that this God himself came to make purification, not somebody he made. So just that match, you see, is is really helpful to see how they relate. A second one I'll draw your attention to is the B match. Um, He appointed heir of all things. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, he appointed heir of all things is based upon uh, the Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is actually quoted in verse 5. You're my son today, I've begotten you. And in that text, he says, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. So he's aware, of course, of that context of Psalm 2. You're my son, today I've begotten you. That refers to the resurrection. It's quoted by Peter about the resurrection in Acts chapter 2. So begotten is to to bring someone to life and, and begetting them is the same kind of idea as resurrecting someone from the dead see so today i've asked i've uh, today i've raised you today i've sat you on the throne ask of the nations they're yours that's the sense so enthronement and kingship means by the nature of the case inheritance When you are established as king, this is your kingdom. It's yours. You have it. You inherit this all. And so enthronement and inheritance are bound up together. And that's why they are this, uh, these two are the match. They don't appear as such at first. But he appointed the heir of all things when he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And of course, for us, being united to Christ... Being joined to him and getting to receive everything that he receives, you're heir of all things. That's why, amazingly, Paul can say in Romans 8 that we're his children. And then in just the simplest of logic, he says, if we're children, we're joint heirs. Right? It's simple. If you're the one, you're the other. If you are his and you're a child of God... You stand alongside of Christ and inherit with him. And you have to remember that when he says heir in this sense, he is speaking. Yes, there is a background of his deity because how in the world else could he be all of these things except that he is God. But it really reflects and this is the benefit to see this is his, in his humanity, he's become the heir of all things, joined to our humanity, and he brought our humanity out of death and loss and destruction forever into inheritance of all things. And what a corollary to making purification for sins, because you, you can think of that as, well, I'm forgiven. At least I don't go to hell, Right? At least I don't go to the bad place. Or, but, of course, there are infinite things. One of them is if I'm purified from sins and I'm in the presence of God as his child, I'm an heir of all things along with Christ. To think, 
To think that Christ would suffer for those who despised him and wouldn't hear him, had their backs turned upon him, and he would die for them, as Paul says in Romans 5, died for the ungodly, his enemies. When we were weak, he, he died for us in order to give these people that despise you everything. Who does that? <laughs> God alone. That's Paul's point there. So not only he makes purification for sins, he sits down at the right hand and inherits, inherits all things. And you see it lived out, uh, uh, spoken out in Hebrews as he enlarges on that inheritance in several places. So the one who made the world made purification of sins And not only did he make purification for sins for us, and it's absolute, it's sovereign, because he's the creator of all things. He's the heir now. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Sitting down, we'll explore this more in other places, but sitting down indicates that it's finished. It it indicates sovereignty, because he rules all from this right hand. And as uh, several have pointed out, it's not... It's not the throne and Jesus beside the throne. It's the throne with the majesty and Jesus on the throne right by him. That's the picture. Sitting at the right of the throne. At the right part of the throne. Which indicates he's the center of power in the universe. At the right hand of God. The center of all power. The one who holds all power in the universe from the very throne of God. Of course, it points out that he is, he is God himself. Then he, in saying, and in, in looking at A, just briefly, just so you, and, and I, I explained this in the notes, so I won't go much into it, but it doesn't look like that matches at first. So he's spoken Many portions, many ways to the fathers through the prophets, spoken to us as son, and then it mentions the angels. But look down in chapter 2 again, he says, this message declared by angels, if that was serious, what about a message through the son? So the contrast between angels and son is for the point of contrasting the revelation through the angels and the son. And that's why the angels are mentioned in verse 4 to say not only did he used to speak through prophets, but now the son, he spoke through angels, but now it's the son. That's why those match. And then he goes on in verse 5 and following to keep that, uh, keep that contrast. Verse 5, which of the angels did God ever say? Uh, verse uh, 7, of the angels, he says, but of the son, he says. So that contrast, angel and son, angel and son. And then he gets to chapter 2 and says, So, seeing how much more glorious the Son is than the angels, if if what God revealed through Moses and through the angels was important, what about what he said through the Son? So, verse 4, which is our A prime, and the first couple of verses, uh, A there, uh, are really part of the same thing. Uh, he's much superior to the angels who uh, were the mediators to Moses. Uh, 
as also he's inherited a more excellent name than theirs. Another interesting point that you can't see in the English is that the word son ends the A part, but in the Greek, the word name ends that A prime part. So in the original, uh, you could just see his structure a little better. There's the son, and then there's the one that has the name. And I side with those that would say the name is probably the name Yahweh, Lord. Because like in Philippians 2, he has a name above every name. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, it's the confession of the church that he is Lord. And in fact, he is uh, redressed in verse 10. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth. And the writer of Hebrews says he's speaking to the Son at that point. And so this is probably the name, the name of God, the name above all names, the name of Lord over all uh, creation, all the universe. So it's the Son, it's the Lord through whom he speaks. You must listen to him. You must listen to him. Then finally, uh, I've, I've talked about in the notes how he has these participles that lead to main verbs. Uh, like in A, having spoken is, uh, the participles are in italics, having spoken, now he's spoken in his son. So it connects them. The first speak, the second speak is not disconnected from the first. Having said all these things, this same God now has said this. He's spoken in his son. So they're related. And also, how wonderfully related are this are this second set of italics, beginning in D. Being, present tense, being the radiance of the glory, the exact likeness of his nature, upholding all things by the word of his power, making purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, this makes this one point that the one who is God's radiance and exact representative or exact representation he is the one who sits at the right hand of God the one who upholds all things is the one who sits at the right hand of God the one who made purification of sin is the one who sits at the right hand of God so you have to connect those there in our ESV you can't see that connection as well because we tend to break up these long sentences. This is all one sentence, but we tend to break them up and put them in pieces. It's better, easier to understand that way. But I just want you to get that feel that uh, he's, he's pouring all of this. In fact, you could even translate these with a sense. Since he is the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint, and since he upholds the universe, and since he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand. After all, he's the image of God. After all, he's the exact representation. After all, he's the one that upholds all things. After all, he made purification of sins. See? It's just building and and mounting phrase after phrase to show how glorious is this one who sat down at the right hand of God. It also shows that sitting down at the right hand of God is the main point in that second section. This is gigantic in Christianity. Sitting down at the right hand of God includes 
He was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God. So this is a shorthand. It includes all of that. Okay. But so for Christianity, the resurrection is what turned everything upside down. It was the resurrection through which we see everything else. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if he's not raised from the dead, he says, our faith is futile. Our faith is empty. We've got nothing, he says. If he's not raised from the dead, we are still in our sins. We have no forgiveness. None. Because he was not raised from the dead. If he's still dead, then we're dead with him. It's all over. And he says, if he is not raised from the dead, those who have... It's interesting, he says, those who've fallen asleep have perished. And you kind of think, well, duh, yeah, they're dead, you know. But his point is, those who've fallen asleep have not ultimately perished. They're going to be raised again one day. But if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, they're gone. They only have faced death and condemnation and eternal judgment. That's all they have if there's no resurrection. So it was the resurrection, the fact that he was seated on the throne. In fact, that was Peter's first words. He said, you hear all these people speaking in tongues and speaking other languages? Do you speaking in your language, announcing the things of God to you? You know why that? You know why this happened? Because Jesus is at the right hand of God. And he's poured this out that you see today. See, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit was the great evidence That he is at the right hand of God. Look what he's poured out upon the church. Look what he's done. They they saw everything and we see everything out of the lens of Christ's resurrection, ascension, and sitting at the right hand of God. And so for the writer of Hebrews, this is his primary point. That the one who is like God, who upholds the word and made purification, is seated at the right hand of God. See, this word, he upholds the universe, is the word for carrying something. So, I like the translation, he's bearing the universe, carrying the universe. Not in a physical sense, but bearing it forward to its final end and purpose. He's the one that's doing that. So appropriate that he should be at the right hand of God, seated. Because he's the one that's bearing everything forward to its final end and purpose. It's in his hands, no one else's. And in all of this, when he says he's the radiance of his glory, he's saying all that we see in Christ is the showing of God himself. Not to, this is God himself manifested to us. What we see Jesus do and say and how he responds to people and how he sacrifices himself. As Jesus said, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is the Father in action through me. This is the Father showing himself through me. You want to see God? Here it is. I'm it. In the flesh. Well, so he spoke in all that Christ has accomplished. And we, brothers and sisters, have to lay hold of this purposeful, deliberate, compassionate 
revealing of God to us. This act of goodness to us that he would give himself in this way. When I was at Park Cities, before I came there, I I did singles ministry in the 90s there for for a couple of years. And uh, there's this fellow, Jay Hofstetler, who had done the singles before me. Uh, He was just a a layman, as we say, uh, but he taught the singles class. And the elder liaison and his wife, who uh, attended that and helped with the singles, told me that Jay was so brutally honest. He said, we would come to class kind of on the edge of our seats just to wait for the next story, you know. And he would tell stories about his wife. And you'd just be thinking, did she know he was going to say that? You know, Not about her, but about some conflict they had. I mean, he's just brutally honest about what we said or threw or did, you know, just. And people were just kind of, Jerry Springer show right here in the singles class, right? <clears throat> but, you know, it was amazing for me the first time I had lunch with Jay, knowing what he was like, and he was that way with me, just talking about his life, how quickly I unveiled my heart to Jay. I knew I was safe with this guy. I knew he held nothing back. You could give yourself to him. And I want you to understand how God has put his heart out there for you. I mean, he's put himself out there. I, I was so chicken with Jan Taylor, a beautiful girl that lived across the street. This is when we were pretty young. And I was sitting in front of other kids in the neighborhood. And I said, Jan, if, if I, would you like me if I liked you? Hedging my bets, you know. I wasn't going to say, look, girl, you're gorgeous. I can't stop thinking about you. I really like you. I'm here to tell you. No, no, no. I don't really like you. I'm not really. I'm just wondering if maybe if, you know, would you like, you know. That's not what God is. That's not what God does. God is just out there. He says, I love Deeply, I love in a sacrificing way. I give myself wholly to people in the person of my son. And I give myself for their sins and I give them a kingdom. I give everything away to them. That's who I am. What about it? See? That's why the writer is saying, you can't ignore this God who's spoken in his son. You can't, you must not turn this away. You must not shrug your shoulders at this. I just love how after saying all those uh, wonderful things that we do in Ferris Lord Jesus that we you know how beautiful he is, how wonderful he is, comparing him to angels and creation. And then it just breaks out. Beautiful Savior, Lord of the nations, Son of God and Son of Man, glory and honor, praise, adoration, now forevermore be thine. You know, that's, that's really what the 
writer here is, is all about. To make us admirers of this Christ. To be in awe and wonder over him. Like a Grand Canyon wonder. Like a mountainside in the Smoky Mountains in the fall. Blazing with yellows and oranges and reds. And he wants us to keep gasping over Christ. So that we will always hear Christ. We will always hold on to him as our precious hope. And isn't it interesting that Paul could explain the gospel in this way. To say, I preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's the gospel. That's the good news. The unsearchable riches of Christ. And by looking at him, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, as we behold in a mirror the glory of the Lord, they speak into the Lord Jesus, we become like him. We take on his beauty. We begin to love family and others with the love of Christ. We actually have something of his goodness. That's our great prospect. That is this... This great Lord Jesus, through him the Father has revealed himself. Let us pray. O Lord, give us grace. Give us grace that we will seek after you, Lord. That you will be the center of our lives. That exploring you in the word and praising you. And and Lord, having our hearts on a day-to-day basis. As hard as it is to, to seek to try to live in that, that world, that frame of mind where we have a resident admiration. We have a residual happiness and wonder that filters into our work and our relationships, our responsibilities. This glorious background symphony of admiration an adoration for Christ that sweetens our interactions and causes us more and more to love with the very love that Christ loves. And of course, that Lord, all the more we listen to this Christ. How like your statement on the mountain when the three disciples were there and you said, this is my beloved son, hear him. And so you said here in this opening, this is my beloved son, hear him. Oh Lord, give us the joy and eagerness, the vigor as well as the discipline of hearing our Lord Jesus all our days. Amen.